Good morning. Chad Martin joined Chestnut Housing earlier this year as an organizational consultant, bringing nearly 25 years of experience in the nonprofit sector. In these few short months, he has moved Chestnut Housing forward in uncountable ways, and he is a joy to work with. In addition to executive leadership roles and board service for a variety of organizations, Chad has been pastor at Community Mennonite Church of Lancaster and an art teacher in Pittsburgh. Chad lives just outside the city on a six-acre farm with his wife, Jess, their two kids, and goats, chickens, sometimes pigs, a fox, a heron, a muskrat. It's quite a place. Whenever we meet, we have a farm update first, and then we move on to the business of the day. <laughs> Welcome, Chad. Well, thank you, Sue, and thanks, everyone, for having me here this morning. I want to begin by uh, thanking you for this invitation. It feels like a very humbling task to be speaking with you about Chestnut Housing, a program and a vision that was hatched and nurtured here in this congregation long before I became a part of it. I know many of you have given hours of your time, given your money, given your prayers to Chestnut Housing. So this is about as close as anybody can get to literally preaching to the choir. So we'll see how this goes this morning. So I come with gratitude for what you have done over these 10 years with Chestnut Housing. That being said, I also don't want to assume that everyone in the room knows what Chestnut Housing Corporation is or what we do. So I'm going to begin with like a very succinct description of our program and our mission and then go from there. Chestnut Housing Corporation was founded by this congregation about a decade ago to address acute housing needs in our community. Today, Chestnut Housing owns nine apartments, uh, actually a mix of apartments and a home within a few blocks of this building, along with three homes that are owned by this congregation. We manage all of them as affordable rental housing, specifically serving residents who have experienced homelessness. Chestnut Housing has a focus on purchasing blighted or otherwise undervalued property. I think uh, the most sort of shining example of this experience was the purchase of the former Shanks Cafe and renovating it into six apartments. We do this using a mix of donated funds, a few small loans when we need to, along with a great deal of sweat equity, many hours put in by folks in this congregation and other friends and supporters. And in this way, we're able to keep financing minimal, keep a low uh, operating budget, and we have a very favorable property management agreement with Hershey Real Estate. All of this together makes it possible for us to rent these apartments and homes well below the market value, uh, often at 60% or less of what the market would typically bear for similar housing, ensuring that they're affordable for every household who lives there. Coupled with this kind of financial approach, we partner with a number of local agencies such as Tenfold, CAP, Milagro House, and others who refer potential residents to Chestnut Housing and then agree to provide a year of case management support to ensure housing stability for these residents. Through this model, Chestnut Housing has been able to provide a safe, attractive, quality home for dozens of households over the last 10 years. I feel like that's worth just sort of like taking a breath and celebrating for a moment, largely to the work of this congregation. Dozens of households 
have had a place to live over the last 10 years. I'm curious, how many in the room, if you're willing to be so bold as to raise your hand, how many of you have given money or time or otherwise supported the work of Chestnut Housing over these last 10 years? It's amazing. Look around and notice those hands in the air. This, my friends, is the heart of Chestnut Housing and is what makes it possible to do what we do. So let's hold on to that goodwill and that spirit for a moment as we go on this journey together. I invite you this morning to join with me in reflecting on the biblical foundations for this work in housing, or what may be the biblical foundations for this work. The Bible has a lot to say about money and economics. I assume you all recognize this. So we could have a lot of different entry points to how we go into this. And I imagine, I wonder if some of you have a favorite Bible verse or passage that has inspired you in some way to participate in the work of Chestnut Housing or similar work over the years. If so, I would love to hear about that sometime. What kind of uh, resonates with you that inspires you to do this work? In recent years, my own reflection has been inspired in large part by a venerable Old Testament scholar named Walter Brueggemann. Some of you may be familiar with his writing over the last uh, 50 or 60 years. In particular, I've been inspired recently by a book he wrote a few years ago called Money and Possessions that's one of the best sort of uh, analysis. It's also an approachable and accessible writing style analyzing what the Bible has to say about economics. He kind of works his way through the whole kind of sweep of the Old and New Testaments. So I'll be quoting from him a couple times here this morning. So let's look at Deuteronomy 15 that John read for us. This passage about debt comes in the midst of one of these like Old Testament strings of instruction that you may read and think this surely has nothing to do with us. Uh, instructions about clean and unclean food, about how you appoint justice, uh, judges in an ancient society about observing Passover, obscure things like you're not supposed to plow with an ox and a donkey next to each other, things that we read and think this may not have anything to do with us. But scholars like Brueggemann contend that this passage points to a much grander economic vision of life in a good society. And in case you are tempted to think this is disconnected from the New Testament ministry of Jesus, I just remind you of one of the uh, ancient versions of the Lord's Prayer that, where we say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I think we've stopped using that version just because we like trip over it if we do that one alongside other people saying another version or maybe there's some subconscious thing in our kind of capitalist experience that we're not sure we really believe that when we pray it. But this passage, this passage points all the way forward to what Jesus is asking us to pray for as like the heart of what we're supposed to be asking of God. So Deuteronomy 15 is about debt. It's really straightforward in some ways, these instructions, how to manage the accumulation of wealth and capital. It is straightforward and specific, if also unsettling. It's a really simple concept. Every seven years, you're supposed to forgive all debts. So the biblical vision of a good economy, and I wonder if this resonates with our own economy and our own experience of money and wealth, it's one where people are not saddled with debt that they just, like, no matter how hard they try year after year, can't get out from under. It makes clear that poverty is inextricably linked with, with who has access to capital and who doesn't. 
it reminds us that if you're always on like the borrowing side of this equation, you're never able to get ahead. Brueggemann situates this instruction then within a much broader vision of what a good economy looks like. Listen to what he has to say. He says, this provision for debt cancellation is not an isolated act, but it is the centerpiece of an alternative vision of economics that is to define the covenant community. We might say like the good society. The primary implication, he says, of the text is that the economy must be seen as a subset of a neighborly fabric and, be, and must be made to serve and enhance that neighborly fabric. That might sound like a gentle phrase. Let's think for a minute what neighbor, neighborly fabric means. I think of the interactions you all have here when you work alongside uh, other congregations and members of this church to provide community meals. I think of how you share your parking lot with simply anyone who needs a parking space. That's a neighborly fabric. Or think of the way you may in your own neighborhood um, share tools with neighbors, watch out for each other's kids, plan block parties together. This is what Walter Brueggemann means by a neighborly fabric. It's what knits a community together. So let's listen for a minute what else he has to say. What a society does about debt, how creditors manage debt, and how debtors are respected or reduced to long-term despair and eventually violence are the most likely indicators about whether there will be a shared, common peace and prosperity. That is, we could say in our own words, on the one hand, what a society does about debt is vital to the common good. And on the other hand, it turns out we really do a pretty terrible job of this. For he says it's clear that the, the economic vision of a neighborly society urged here is a contradiction of the more conventional economic assumptions and practices that recur in every society. God's economy directly contradicts conventional economy. This was true 2,000 years ago, and it's true today. I imagine at this point we could stop and point to any number of statistics we have rolling around in our heads that underscore this contradiction. One that I heard this week has been sticking with me and kind of like in my gut. The, in the US, the bottom 50%, economically speaking, owns 2% of the nation's wealth. That is, as economist Thomas Piketty puts it, half the population owns essentially nothing. By contrast, of course, the top 10% owns about 70% of wealth in this country. And then uh, the 40% the in between there has the rest. So what is, God's economy directly contradicts our economy. We're going to hold on to that. God's economy directly contradicts our economy. So what does this have to do with affordable housing? Well, first and foremost, it reminds us that affordable housing is an issue precisely we, because we live in a broken economy that does not work for most people. The wealth gap I just quoted is one indicator. We could look at the income gap, which is a similar sort of problem, a similar sort of disparity. And this reminds us that the housing crisis really is an income crisis. So if we want to look at like big picture fixes for housing, we really should be talking about income and how we get that more equal in this country. 
That being said, just this week, another statistic we could look at, NPR reported that for the first time in history in this country, the average rent being advertised across the country for housing is $2,000 a month. Think about that for a minute. That means there's a whole lot of housing that costs more than $2,000 a month. The average hit $2,000 for the first time. Added to that, of course, for more than a century, racial discrimination in lending and real estate practices have conspired to make housing a particularly unequal and unjust part of our economy. On this topic, if you're not sure or if you don't know much about the history of this racial discrimination, I recommend to you the book Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. And if you're not ready for a 300-page deep dive like scholarly, scholarly historical look at that, you can do the bite-sized YouTube intro, just Google segregation by design. It's a 17-minute minute video that's an excellent introduction to the history of racial discrimination in housing. Segregation by design. Actually, really, if that's all you take away from this and go watch that, that's probably better than what we'll do for the next 17 minutes. So go, go find that. Point being, our economy directly contradicts God's economy. I had the opportunity to talk a few weeks ago to another pastor and developer uh, working in a big city church context on the West Coast, they're about to make a transformational investment in affordable housing. So I was curious to learn more about what they're doing. Their plan isn't fully public yet, but it is a super inspirational plan, and I hope this story is one that comes to us in more detail soon. This church is about to essentially uh, give over its property to a nonprofit developer who will then build hundreds hundreds of affordable homes on the site. This is going to translate into a seven-figure investment in affordable housing on the part of that congregation. So I asked this pastor, what in the world has prepared your congregation to be ready to make this kind of change? And she recounted how when the church hit its 50th year anniversary a couple years ago, they began to look really deeply at the biblical concept of jubilee. Jubilee is a companion set of instructions in the Old Testament that sort of parallel what we're looking at in Deuteronomy today. You can read about Jubilee in Leviticus, 15, uh, Leviticus 25. Excuse me. Jubilee is the idea that after seven cycles of seven years of the kind of practices we're reading about today, on the 50th year, everyone will be restored to their ancestral lands. It was to be a holy year, a celebration, a year of celebration and of restoration. And one of the things that I think is notable, especially when you look at that Jubilee text, is that it is this like interweaving of spiritual life and economic life in a way that can't be separated. They're all bound up together. As Walter Brueggemann describes it, he puts it pretty clear. Jubilee is a 50-year cycle of restoration of property and land to those who have lost them in the predatory transactions of the economy. Think for a moment what this could mean in our own context. What, what Jubilee would mean for people of color whose ancestors were enslaved. What Jubilee would mean for indigenous peoples who've lost their tribal lands. What Jubilee would mean for anyone who sleeps outside because they struggle no matter how hard they try to keep a roof over their heads. 
This pastor pointed to a church's deep study and embrace of that concept in the Bible during their 50th year as a congregation as the main reason they were ready and willing to take bold action and essentially hand over the keys of their primary asset, the main thing they own, for the development of affordable housing. They are striving to better align our economy with God's economy. So let's bring this all a little closer to home. In the 10 years since Chestnut Housing began, to put it lightly, the local housing market has not stood still. I imagine every one of you has a personal story about this, someone you know who has struggled to find a place to live, sellers who have multiple competing offers on a house before they even put it on the market, renters at really every income level who simply cannot find housing that meets their needs that also works for their budget. We could also point to every day in Lancaster County, hundreds of people living without a home and many others finding themselves at risk of losing their homes. This is the landscape we're living in where we do our work. So according to Places 2040, Lancaster County's new comprehensive plan that was adopted a year or two ago, the population here is expected to grow countywide by about 100,000 residents over the next 20 to 25 years. That's like a 20% increase in that amount of time. So when I think about that number, for all the new housing you see being built across the county, literally like any place that you've driven by where there's something being built, including new high-rises here in the city, that it's simply not keeping up with the demand that we will experience over the next 20 years. We simply need more housing that is affordable across all income levels and meets a variety of household needs. So given these real realities, recently the city of Lancaster released a new housing strategy to guide its policies and funding priorities in the next few years. That plan calls for just here in the city the creation of 2,000 new homes over the next five years. And folks, that's a lot of housing. If you add up everything that's currently being built, it's like a, a small kind of fraction of those 2,000 homes needed over the next few years. But also, this plan and the city's historic commitment to invest $5 million of its American Rescue Plan funds to affordable housing, I believe there is also an incredible opportunity. This isn't just about the need for housing. There is an incredible opportunity right now to do this work with the support of many stakeholders in both the public and private sectors. With so much attention focused on housing, and I'm sure if you read the newspaper you sense this, it's a conversation that's bubbling up everywhere right now. There has never been a better time to find a way to get involved and make a difference. It's this mix of opportunity and need that makes it such a rich moment of potential for chestnut housing. We could put this another way. We too have an opportunity to better align our economy with God's economy in the coming years in Lancaster. So I'm gonna wrap up by sharing with you how Chestnut Housing is seizing this opportunity. We've been working in recent months on a strategic plan to set the course of our work for the next five years and to dramatically increase the impact of our work and our mission in the community.
So this is fun because you're the first group of people that we're giving like a sneak peek of this to. I've talked about it in vague terms and big numbers with other people, but you get the sneak peek of what this plan includes. So we're setting out to achieve four key objectives in the coming years that we believe will make our mission successful. One, we're going to increase housing options to provide affordable rental housing to more people in our community. This means, in real numbers, growing Chestnut housing to 100 affordable homes in the next five years. That's our big goal. This means doing more, a lot more, of what we've been doing. But it also means developing new homes, partnering in creative ways with congregations and others to provide more homes. It's going to mean a lot of creative ideas coming to the table. So bring, bring every idea you've got. Our second objective is to support residents in deeper and more impactful ways by in, to help increase their housing stability. This means in kind of real terms, learning alongside our partner agencies to do more to support residents. And it means learning from our residents. It means inviting their voices to the decision-making table to help us learn how to do this work better. Third, we're going to build our organizational capacity. And that, the nuts and bolts of that are about as like nonprofit wonky as that sounds. It means things like creating a staff team, building the board to have more skills and more people to do the work. It means more uh, sophisticated financial systems because we're going to be a more complex organization. It's that kind of stuff. And then our fourth goal is we need to further diversify the funding that supports this work. If I had another 20 minutes, I'd tell you what that might look like in terms of some creative opportunities to invest in affordable housing and creative ways we're engaging congregation. But suffice to say, this means we just need a lot more money from a lot more people to do the work. Again, the goal is simple, 100 homes in five years. But getting there will not be easy. I imagine you're seeing that already. It will take all of us stepping up to do our part. And in particular, I am convinced that it will mean more congregations joining in the work to find creative ways to build housing. So it won't be easy, but we believe this is absolutely an achievable, doable goal. Aligning our economy with God's economy. That's what this is all about. We recognize that we can do more, and so we will do more. And the good news is we are building momentum and gaining friends and supporters week by week, some of whom came to join us in the room today. I've begun making the rounds to other churches to explicitly invite them to join in this work, and it is super fun to do that on behalf of Chestnut Housing. The response is exciting. After one service, I had a number of volunteers who do work with Mennonite Disaster Service come up to me, and they were ready to pick up a hammer, I mean like tomorrow, yesterday to do work for Chestnut Housing. At another, I had one of the most highly regarded real estate attorneys in Lancaster County, someone who like helps do the big real estate deals that you read about in the newspaper. She walked up to me after the service, handed her card, and said, if you ever need legal help, I'd be glad to do pro bono work for Chestnut Housing. And a landlord in the same congregation who owns dozens of city properties began talking with me about what it could look like to donate part of his portfolio to Chestnut Housing. These are the kinds of things that people, simply because we're going out and asking, 
them to support what we're doing are ready to step up. Folks, we have a real opportunity. If we show up and do our part, and if we compel our friends and neighbors and other churches to show up alongside us and do their part, we can make transformational change in this community. We can align our economy right here in Lancaster with God's economy. We can align our economy much more closely with God's economy. So this morning, may the prophet's vision that John read, may the prophet's vision of that economy be our prayer as we continue to step into this work. My people will live in peaceful dwelling places, in secure homes, in undisturbed places of rest. May it be so. Amen.